turn on our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, Sunday morning, studying the book of Revelation together. As we're finding our way there, just a reminder that on Sunday nights, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, currently studying the gospel according to John. We'll be looking at chapter 4 tonight with what I think is one of the most needed messages for us as Christians to hear today and living in this culture that we live in. And each of you are invited. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John writes, and he said, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a, two, a, a sharp sword, and that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all of the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured, and with him uh, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed, and the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him, uh, with the sword that proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Let's pray together. Father, we pray and ask today that you would sanctify us by your truth. As Jesus said, your word is truth. And we pray for this work of your Holy Spirit this morning in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This passage, when we come to it now in Revelation chapter 19, we come formally to what is known as Jesus' second coming, complete with uh, details related to the battle of Armageddon, which will be associated with his second coming. And uh, more importantly, though, it provides us with, I think, invaluable instruction uh, uh, concerning Jesus and description of him as well. The passage records for us what is going to be the future answer to what has to be uh, the single most frequently lifted up prayer to the Lord in church history, and that is the prayer that Jesus himself 
called on us to pray in what is known as the Lord's Prayer, and, uh, and that is the, the cry to God, the plea to God, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth, even as it's being done in heaven. And the answer to that prayer happens at Jesus' second coming, and it happens here in what's recorded in chapter uh, 19. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments have not been poured out on the earth as we've seen, merely for judgment's sake. Every one of them has been necessary in preparing the world uh, for Jesus' second coming and for, uh, in the words of the Revelation itself in chapter 11, verse 15, that the kingdoms of this world might become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And in chapter 19, this finally happens, and it's really kind of the climax of, of that tribulation period. We remember that the Old Testament uh, contains two very, very descriptions, different descriptions of the Messiah, uh, the two portraits of Him. There's one portrait that portrays Him as the suffering Savior come into the world to provide us with the forgiveness of our sins. And then there is a second portrait that portrays Jesus, portrays Messiah as a conquering king, as a, a warrior uh, Messiah. And so what to do with these two very, very different views of the Messiah, uh, really seemingly contradictory views. And we know what the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day did with those two descriptions of Messiah. Um, they felt that they needed to choose between one or the other to emphasize. And so they emphasized the more popular of the two for the Jewish people, and that was they emphasized uh, Messiah and the portrait of Him as a conquering king. To the virtual neglect of the portrait of Jesus as the suffering Savior. And what happened then, when Jesus came into human history, in His first coming, uh, not only were the Jewish religious leaders, but the Jewish population as a whole completely unprepared to recognize Him as the fulfillment of the portrait of the suffering Savior because nobody talked about it. Nobody emphasized it. They only emphasized the conquering King uh, portrait. And so in doing this, their view became unbalanced concerning Messiah and the expectation of people uh, became unbiblical. And so Jesus came into human history. He's the Messiah Himself. And He proceeded now to reconcile uh, these two views by teaching that these are two descriptions of the same Messiah described in two different comings. That in His first coming, He would come as a suffering Savior, but equally important in His second coming, He would come as a conquering king and fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies that related to that. But this failure on the part of the Jewish religious leaders left people unprepared for uh, Jesus when He came at His first coming, caused many of them to fail to understand Him, 
uh, and what he was doing, what his life was about, and uh, even reject him as their promised Messiah. And even today, even as Christians, we can emphasize one portrait of Jesus in the Gospels, having to do with his first uh, coming, his incarnation, and then completely neglect the portrait of his second coming, the portrait that is made to us of Jesus in the Revelation and elsewhere. Uh, in the Scriptures, and to end up with as unbalanced and as unbiblical a view of Christ as ever the Jews were at Jesus' first coming. And it is not that the portrait of Jesus in the Gospels contradicts the portrait of Him in the Revelation and elsewhere. They're completely complementary because it, it, it takes an understanding of both portraits to fully understand the Jesus Himself and the full revelation of Him. Yes, He was and is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptizer declared, come into the world to provide mankind with salvation in His death and in His burial and in His resurrection, just as the Gospels teach. But no one should think that we have uh, even begun to fully understand uh, Jesus, how He's unveiled in the Scriptures until we see Him as the revelation uh, unveils Him as well. As ascended into heaven now, as sitting at the right hand of the Father uh, presently, as the conquering King, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who will one day personally return to bring an end to all of man's rebellion uh, against uh, God and against His commandments and to judge the wicked and to reward the righteous. What is fascinating, I think, uh, is for us as Christians today is that all of this has been flipped upside down. All of this has been flipped in the minds of many Christians, many Christian de denominations, and churches where there is almost exclusively the emphasis of Jesus as the suffering Savior to almost a virtual neglect of Jesus as the conquering King. As if Jesus as the conquering King and the warring Messiah is something to be embarrassed about concerning Him. And I think for many Christians, if they had their own way, Jesus would ever remain the suffering Savior, and He would never be the conquering King that He is and that He will be. And I think a lot of this stems from a clash of worldviews that we're in the middle of, especially in the United States, concerning man and uh, the view of of mankind, that even Christians can find themselves on the wrong side of intellectually and theologically. The Bible teaches that every single human being born into the world is fallen with a sin nature. From the time of the Garden of Eden, it is our inheritance from the fall of our great-great-great-great-great-whatever-greats all the way back to Adam and Eve. That our dilemma and our situation as human beings is that we are not sinners 
because we sin. That would be bad enough, but our, our problem is deeper. And it, it is because uh, uh, we are sinners that we sin. We're born with a sin nature. We're born with an attractiveness uh, to sin. It, it is something that we like, and it has a, a pull upon us and, and wrongdoing. And so we're born with that, and that sin nature has to be kept in check by laws that restrict, restrict the practice of wickedness and then the enforcement of those laws. And God has instituted a government for uh, that very purpose in, in society as a whole. Increasingly in our, our uh, secular uh, society, it believes in what is called the innate goodness of man. That man is born essentially good from the womb. Every person is really good at their core and when they do wrong things, there is no sin nature at all that is in, involved in it, but that it's all environmentally, uh, environmental, and that all behavior is learned, that all crime is, is a product of, of societal injustice, and that ca- uh, pun- uh, physical punishment uh, provides no deterrence at all to to bad behavior, that the solution is not found in enacting righteous laws and then enforcing those laws, but in educating people in their innate goodness. And the idea is that we can good people into uh, being good. But that is not the world that you live in, and it has never worked in human history, and it will uh, never uh, work because it's built on a flawed understanding of human nature. You look at some of our major cities in the United States of America today, and you're seeing not only the breakdown of society, but the breakdown of civilization. And uh, yes, it's important that we address environmental issues that can feed that, that kind of thing, but the solution will always require righteous laws and law enforcement, that is the enforcement of those laws in order to regain control. And so it will be at Jesus' second coming. God has laws during the tribulation period. They will be violated in spades, and, uh, and the Lord will need to return then and, and uh, judge all of that and bring it to an end. And you stop and you ask, after all, what is uh, the alternative when mankind throws off every restraint, even every law or restraint uh, by God that is placed upon his sin nature? Do you just let it all go until it destroys itself and the righteous and the innocent uh, with them? And that's exactly what would happen. Jesus declared uh, what the world would become uh, in that case, uh, barring his own second coming in Matthew chapter 24, verse 22. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. We must not enfeeble Jesus. We must not make him anything, not one iota less, then who and what he is, as he's revealed 
in the fullness of the Scriptures. I think it's very fascinating and I think it's very telling that Jesus, at His second coming and the judgment that He meets out at this, He does not delegate this. He does not delegate delegate this judgment uh, to Michael the archangel. He does not delegate it to the angel Gabriel. But He uh, assigns it to Himself. He maintains it for Himself, and He fully and unmistakably identifies Himself with it. And He will do the same thing uh, at the white throne judgment of God when we come to that in chapter 20. And if anybody thinks that there's a hairbreadth's uh, difference between uh, Jesus, uh, God the Father's view of the necessity of righteous judgment upon wickedness and evil and those who reject His salvation, and uh, Jesus' view of the same thing are badly mistaken. And this fills the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. I could spend the rest of the, our time reading verses in this regard, but allow me to give you just a couple from the Old Testament as they declare this truth concerning Jesus. Psalm 2, which is, is an is a Old Testament snapshot of, of this very event of the second coming and on into the kingdom age. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people vain, uh, 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 plot a vain thing? The idea that man can overthrow God. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Messiah saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens, that is God Himself, shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. And then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them with His deep displeasure. And then the Lord declares, Yet I have set my King, speaking of Jesus, on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And you will break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. One more in Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. And who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Then you take it into the New Testament. And Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude verse 14 Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment on all, 
to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. So this is the portrait, the dual portrait. And Jesus is the fulfillment and is in actuality both of those things. Now, I would be very, very negligent in describing Jesus in this way without also uh, describing the context of the environment that he is going to enter into at his second coming at the end of the seven years of the tribulation uh, period where he comes in and then destroys the armies of, of mankind in the battle of Armageddon. During the tribulation period, every single human being is going to hear the gospel. Every single human being is going to hear God's offer of salvation in Jesus Christ made to them. Uh, the 144,000 will do that. The two witnesses will do that. An angel will preach the everlasting gospel to the entire world. And the effect of it will be that so many people will get saved during the tribulation period and become Christians that they are uh, without number. Even God can't uh, number them kind of symbolically the huge number of people that will become Christians and referred to as, as tribulation uh, saints. And as a result of that, the Antichrist will try to wipe them out because they are bad advertising uh, for him. And the remaining population of the world will then endeavor in a demonic frenzy uh, to take the life and slaughter every single Christian like animals that lives and exists during the tribulation uh, period. And uh, the population of the world at the time of Je Jesus' second coming will be made up of tribulation saints who have somehow survived the seven years of tribulation and then these unspeakably awful people, I mean, Satan's true believers, the worst of the worst, demonic and uh, incurable in, in their uh, alignment with him. Jesus' second coming accomplishes many things among them, and uh, the deliverance of the righteous, the tribulation saints, and then the judgment of Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and uh, all of their demonically enthusiastic uh, followers. Now, uh, that sets the groundwork for what we find ourselves in the middle of here. Now let's look briefly at this description of Jesus at His second coming. In verse 11, we're told that He will come from heaven to earth. This will be an answer to uh, Isaiah uh, his plea to God, Isaiah chapter 4, uh, 64, verse 1, he cries out to God, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble 
at your presence. You might remember that when Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days after His uh, resurrection from the dead, the disciples were there on the Mount of Olives when He, when he made His ascension back into the glory uh, of heaven. That is, the disciples were looking up and watching Him disappear from their sight. There were a couple of angels there with them, and they declared to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw Him go into heaven. He'll also, in verse 11, He will ride a white horse. Further in verse 11, He is called faithful and true. God has declared in His Word that He is one day going to deliver the righteous and He is going to judge uh, the wicked and He will keep that promise. He will be faithful and true to keep that promise. Jesus declared this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. Uh, in, in this regard, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a great sound of trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other." We're told further in verse 11 that in righteousness He judges and He makes war. The war that He wages is nothing like the wars that human beings uh, uh, wage at all. It's important to realize that uh, God's righteousness is revealed in His wrath against wrongdoing and in his war against it. God could not be faithful, he could not be true, and he most certainly could not be righteous if he did not judge uh, what is wicked and unrighteous. You notice in verse 12 further that his eyes were like a flame of fire. So not only as Jesus returns, will He see everything with an absolute clarity, but He will witness what He sees with His eyes with an indescribable holiness. And when He sees what He sees at His second coming, going on on the earth, it is going to displease Him uh, mightily. In verse 12, we're told that on his head were many crowns, speaking of his authority, that it is his sole right to rule and reign this earth that he spoke into uh, existence and the position that he will take in his second coming. And of course, this is in great contrast, these crowns that he wears at his second coming from uh, the only crown that the world considered him to be, uh, esteem him to be worthy of a crown of thorns in his first coming. This is an entirely different uh, thing that goes on in the second coming. In verse 12, he had a name written that no one knew uh, except himself. Now, I think this is interesting and interesting to realize that even as Christians one day when we find ourselves in heaven, 
And we have been given a new body. This corruption is put on incorruption. This mortal is put on immortality. A body that is made for eternity in the heavenly realm. But even situated like that, even being in the glory of heaven, there will still be things about Jesus that we do not understand and that we cannot uh, know. And the reason for that is that even in our glorified condition by the grace of God in heaven, we will still be the creation. And He will be the Creator. And any time you have the creation or any time you have the finite in relationship with the infinite, you're going to have mystery. And you have to get used to mystery. And there will be mystery uh, about God and about Christ uh, even on into uh, eternity. But it will be a wonderful, wonderful mystery that leaves us uh, in, in even greater awe of Him. As the old saying goes, a God that is small enough to understand isn't big enough to worship. And our God is not small enough to understand. We notice too in verse 13 that he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And this symbolizes his coming victory uh, at Armageddon. It does not speak of his own blood that was shed upon the cross, but he's covered with the blood of, of the wicked, of his enemies. Again, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah spoke of it. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? With dyed garments of Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, uh, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save, uh, Messiah says. The question then is asked of him, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And Messiah answers, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. You notice further in verse 13, his name is called the Word of God. And what is a word? What is a, a word? A word is something, it is a means of communication. There is something that is inside of me that I want to communicate to you and, and to reveal to you. And so we use words in order to uh, accomplish that, to express and to re reveal. And all of this speaks of the fact that Jesus' life, His ministry, His teaching, uh, His actions, including this judgment, that they are all consistent with and they communicate not only His nature, but the nature of God the Father uh, as well. He will be accompanied, we're told in verse 14, by armies in heaven, and that they uh, will be clothed in fine linen, white and uh, clean. And so, uh, this armies that will uh, accompany Him at His second coming, they will follow Him, we're told, on white horses. And so, people ask, are there animals in heaven? Well, we know at least there are horses there. And toy poodles. We have two toy poodles. I do know there are no cats in heaven. 
because you just can't. You can't have an animal that would that is that selfish in heaven. It can't. It just. I mean, you know. So I, I've got a friend, and and um, and you know, cat owners are so sensitive. <laughs> so he reminded me that he has a cat, and. Um, and so when he sits down in the morning and has his quiet time, he always has a yogurt with him. And uh, he always prays for the yogurt. And he's taught the cat to bow its head while he prays. Have you ever noticed that cat owners are really show-offs too <laughs> in, in terms of all of this? But I mean, it, it, so horses, yes, everything else, we have no idea at all. Notice that the armies are plural. So there'll be more than one army, two armies that are going to come with Jesus, accompany Him at His second coming. One of them is clearly an angelic army. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on His throne in His uh, glory. Second Corinthians, uh, Thessalonians chapter 1 uh, verse 7, uh, verse 6, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give uh, you who are troubled rest with us uh, when Jesus, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. So again, we see that. And then the second army is made up of Christians. Uh, the bride of the Lamb, as we looked at last time, they are Christians. They're described in verse 8 earlier in the chapter as being arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. So it's clearly a reference to uh, us in this context. Uh, Paul makes it drop dead clear in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, when he writes, uh, so that He, speaking of God, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. And so we will accompany Him, but we will not engage in the battle. There will be no blood on us, so to speak, as in terms of who enters into this battle. We merely accompany Him. The battle is not ours. This is a battle in a, in a fight between God and, uh, and uh, the wicked. And so that's between Him and sinful man. And so we're not only going to see the second coming as Christians, but we're going to participate in it. And, and uh, in the sense that we will accompany Jesus. Now, I don't know how long that horse ride is going to be from heaven uh, to the earth. Um, I suspect we'll all handle it well. I'm not that comfortable with horses. I haven't been on a lot of horses. The only horse I've ever been on that I was comfortable with was over, what's well, like um, 50 years ago at Knott's Berry Farm. <laughs> and they had a horse there that just goes in a circle, and I felt very confident on that horse. One time some friends took me up to Kennedy Meadows on a horse, and um, it was a stallion. It was, a, it was just a spirited animal. 
And uh, anyway, I'd never done anything remotely like that, and I didn't know all the little signals with the reins and all that kind of stuff. And they didn't bother to tell me. I mean, they told me left and right, and so they got us uh, backed up on a cliff to take a picture because, you know, there wasn't enough open (laughs) ground all around us to do that on. And so we had to pull on the reins to pull the horses back. That's the reverse. And so um, I, I was hitting my reins to get the horse to stop from going in reverse because we we're going to go over that cliff. And, uh, but evidently I was still pulling the reverse. And then one of the guys jumped in and saved me. So this part of the second coming is a little traumatic for me. <laughs> On, on it, and I, but we will be able to do this when when the time uh, when the time comes, and it, and and it'll obviously be quite awesome to be a part of it. Out of his mouth, verse 15, goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And so, at the Battle of Armageddon, you're going to have the kings of the earth, their armies, the Antichrist's army. You're going to have another army that comes from the east, another army that comes from the north, as we've covered, as we've gone through. Uh, through the book, they will be uh, demonically drawn to the valley of Megiddo initially to fight one another and to do battle. And then when Jesus comes at His second coming, their hatred, the only person they have a greater hatred for than one another uh, is Jesus Himself. And they'll unite together then uh, to turn all of their weaponry uh, against Him and and, and to fight then uh, the Lord at His return. Jesus does not come with F-35s. He does not come at all with... Uh, with B-52 bombers, in order to engage them, he defeats them by simply saying something with a word of his mouth. We have no idea what it is. We don't know if he's going to quote a verse. We don't know if he's going to say um, enough or whatever it might be. But it is with the words that come out of his mouth that these three great armies that fill the valley of Megiddo from one end to the other in Israel, that valley is 164 miles long. And with one word from his mouth, that battle will be over. It's actually kind of uh, the unbattle of Armageddon. There's no sweating, there's no fighting, there's no hand-to-hand, there's none of that kind of thing. Jesus is the member of the Godhead through which the heavens and the earth were created by the Word of God, the Word coming from His mouth. When Jesus created the universe, He created the heavens and the earth. It didn't take Him months or weeks or years or anything like that. He didn't get sore, His muscles, none of that. What He did is He merely spoke it into existence. And, and those words now being spoken here on, on this scene, obviously something uh, of judgment, and those armies are completely destroyed. The word that is used here in the Greek for the sword that is, uh, is used and, and mentioned here, and a sword is used symbolically of the Word of God repeatedly in the Scriptures, but this word 
and I, we've mentioned it before, but the context is important to repeat it again. It was the largest and the heaviest of the swords that were used by Roman military. And uh, when a soldier would take hold of this great sword, huge sword, and begin to swing it, bodies would just begin to fly in, in all directions. It was just a devastating, devastating uh, weapon. And when Jesus comes the second time, not going to come as a baby in, in a, a manger. He, he's not going to come as a Messiah at, to be nailed to a Roman cross. He's going to come as a King of kings and Lord of lords. And He's going to put an end to all rebellion against, uh, against Him. And the words of His mouth are going to bring that devastating judgment uh, upon, uh, upon the, the wicked and upon His en uh, enemies. We're told further in verse 15 that He will rule the world with a rod of iron. And uh, during the kingdom age this will be, we'll talk about that uh, next time, that there will not be a single complaint against the fact that He rules, He has righteous laws with which He rules, and that He enforces those laws. And then in verse 15, He Himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Speaking of, again of the severity of the judgment, uh, like a cluster of grapes being tread upon in a winepress, that's what it's going to look like uh, in, in the devastation uh, of Armageddon at His uh, second coming. And so in His first coming, He came to bear the sins of mankind, to provide mankind uh, with salvation, bear the wrath that our sin deserved, and His second coming, He comes to crush all rebellion against God. And no one will want to be on the wrong side of Him on that day. And the wonderful news is that nobody needs to be. Verse 16, He has on His robe and on His thigh, and that is on the robe in the location of his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, speaking of his absolute and indisputable sovereignty in all of the universe and, and his supremacy in the world. In verses 17 through 19, the angel, and again the book of Revelation is filled with these interesting uh, descriptions of the angelic realm. This is one of my favorite. He stands in the sun. And, uh, and then he cries out to the birds uh, that are in, in the sky. He calls on them now to come and make a feast of all of these uh, men who are going to die uh, in this battle uh, of Armageddon. And so uh, they will come together and, uh, and, and, it, and it's like the, the rough translation of the message might be, hey, little birds, there's a bunch of tough guys who think they can take on God and win. And I... I think there might be a meal in it for you. And uh, that's exactly what's going to happen on that scene. Now, with you, when you have the... There are some Christians who believe uh, that before Jesus' second coming, that we are going to Christianize the world. And we're going to bring it largely and entirely under... Uh, the, the, not in terms of individual, but the world will be Christianized. And so when Jesus comes at His second coming, we'll have everything kind of in order and we just hand it over to Him so that He can then rule and reign during the thousand-year reign of Christ that immediately follows. You don't see that here. And you don't see it anywhere in, in the Revelation. 
Uh, we are not going to turn this world into anything that looks even remotely like, uh, like Chris, uh, uh, Christianizing uh, it. Uh, it. The world is doomed if Jesus does not return at the time He does to bring an end to what people are doing uh, on, uh, on the earth. The result of the battle of Armageddon is there in verses 20 and 21. The Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into Gehenna, uh, what is a, a lake of fire burning with brimstone. It's an eternal lake of fire. They will be the sole inhabitants of Gehenna for a thousand years uh, before Satan is ultimately thrown in there and then uh, those who stand before Jesus at the white throne judgment, which we'll talk about in chapter 21. Everybody else that's there at the battle of Armageddon, uh, they will not be taken alive like these two. Uh, they'll be slain by the words that proceed from Jesus' mouth and the birds will then proceed to glut themselves with uh, the meal that the angel uh, promised to them. So again, the book of Revelation is a revelation, uh, uh, not uh, just sermon fodder for end times events. It's not, and, it, and it's not even a revelation of end times events supremely. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And not it concerning His first coming as a suffering Savior, but related to His second coming as a conquering king. And again, as I mentioned, all of it necessary for the kingdoms of this world are destined to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And it's coming, and no one will be able to stop it when it occurs. And so when that happens... Everyone will want to find, will want to be on the right side, not only of the suffering Savior, but also the conquering King. And there's not a reason in the world, everyone and anyone in the world can't be. By putting our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, and then being on the right side of things, with God, and it begins with salvation. It's interesting in Psalm 2, which is the psalm, that, that, the, the psalm in the Old Testament that speaks the most directly to all of this, the psalmist describes the judgment that will occur when Messiah comes at His second coming and heading into the kingdom age. But it doesn't close with just that. It gives a recommendation to mankind about what we should do between us and God in the light of this future victory of God in human history. And it reads like this, Psalm 2, verse 10. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little Blessed are those who put their trust in Him. Kiss the Son. And how we do that is by putting our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, committing now to follow Him 
making Him our Savior and our Lord, committing now to following Him in the grace that He gives in this life and then in the life to come. And if you have never ever trusted in Jesus for that, to begin a personal relationship with God, partaken of the very thing that Jesus came into human history the first time to accomplish, there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And they'd love to pray with you to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, be born again, and be confident that you're on the right side of God, which is exactly where God wants everyone uh, to be. For those of us who are uh, Christians, don't ever, ever, ever apologize for the fullness of who and what Jesus is and how He is revealed in the Scriptures. Because one day in human history, it will be the only hope for mankind's future and for mankind's survival. Jesus is exactly who and what He is. And He is exactly who and what we need. There is nothing to be embarrassed about concerning anything about Him. It is perfectly wise and it is perfectly loving in everything that, that He is and, and everything that He does. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank You this morning for our Savior. We thank You for the full portrait of Him in the Scriptures. And we don't claim to understand it all together, but we understand enough to know that He needed to be a suffering Savior, but He also needs to be a conquering King. For the fix that we find ourselves in to be solved and to be taken care of once and for all. And we thank You, Lord, for His beauty. We thank You for His strength. We thank You for His grace. We thank You for His love. We thank You, Lord, for the wisdom that we see, not only that He spoke, but the wisdom that we see in all that He is. And we thank You again this morning, Lord, for Him, for our Savior. And we thank You in His name, in Jesus' name, Amen.